On this episode of Progressive Palaver, the group discusses Fragile. Hi and welcome to Progressive Palaver, a group of lifelong friends and appreciators of music discussing the greatest progressive rock bands, album by album. I'm Joe Beauclair, and on this episode of Progressive Palaver, I'm once again joined by my very good friends, Ken Gregory and Paul Zotter. As we uh, continue our discussion of the early part of the Yes catalog with the seminal album, Fragile. As you may have guessed from my uh, from my texts today, I took a little bit of time to look into the the Yes Rock and Roll Hall of Fame induction, and so I saw I saw Getty and Alex present them. I saw the what were there five speeches? There was there was John. Trevor, Alan, Steve, and Rick. Oh, I never saw Alan's uh, speech. You didn't miss anything. <laughs> Alan, Alan didn't come across particularly well. Well, at least and he got wondered, some time. Bill Bruford didn't even get get a. Yeah, and then and then I saw the performance of Owner and Roundabout, and. You know, it was it was interesting, and I, I watched them in that order. So, I, you know, and again, I I don't know if you guys know anything about the the background of, of all that, but I did find it sort of an interesting little microcosm of of the whole thing with yes. So John's kind of flighty, and like I said, um, Trevor, Trevor's Trevor. You know, Alan comes off, you know, I, I'm going to give him the benefit of the doubt and I'm going to assume that he was in probably a decent amount of pain because his back didn't look good and he, you know, he seemed to have maybe a little bit of hard time getting his thoughts together. And then Steve gave, you know, the, the straight acceptance speech and then, of course, Rick went off and did what Rick did, which, and, <laughs> and Paul, I had heard you talk about it, but it really was kind of amazing from, like I said, just a, a strict comedic timing and delivery. I yeah. mean, it, it was good. Yeah. I mean, yeah. it was just one after the other and just they, you know, he set them up and knocked them out. It was, it was hilarious. It really was. <laughs> yeah. And I, you know, I really liked your perspective on that, you know, as, as sort of Rick just dismissing the whole thing. Um, as if it were nothing. And I'm like, okay, that's great. So then I pulled up the video for Own Over Lonely Hearts. I'm like, well, uh, that's interesting because I wanted to see, you know, how this whole thing worked. And have you guys seen this at all? Of the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame? Yeah. Oh, yeah, I watched them both twice. So. Yeah. So, yeah, I won. 
everything, everything I think you need to know about Steve Howe and Trevor Raven are exhibited in those videos. So owner of a lonely and I had mentioned I had mentioned before on the whole union tour, you know, the seeming camaraderie between the keyboardists and the drummers and not so much between the guitarists. I don't think Trevor ever looked at Steve Howe once in either one of those two songs. But they're playing owner and Trevor's being Trevor and Steve Howe is playing bass. Yeah. Now, I noticed that when it came time to play Roundabout, Trevor didn't offer to play bass for Steve's song. Yeah, but that's because oh, they had Jerry they love Getty. Yeah. Why would what? you ask Trevor Rabin to play bass if you had Getty Lee standing right there? Why would you ask Steve Howe to play bass if Getty Lee standing right there? I think Steve Howe takes great pleasure from that. I, I think. Yeah. I think. Yeah. That's, I think Steve that's my. Just, so my, 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 thought, my, my thought on that is, is this, is that I've watched Steve Howe play Own Over Lonely Heart several times, and it's very uncomfortable every single time he does. So it seems quite appropriate for him to pick up the bass in tribute to his friend Chris Squire and, and play the bass instead of being uncomfortable on the guitar. I, I think, it, to me, it speaks more toward, you know, to the fact that I think Steve, in a lot of ways, is the bigger person. He's willing to do whatever needs to be done. Oh, okay. Whereas there's no way in hell Trevor Rabin would ever. And don't try to convince me that Trevor Rabin couldn't. Because by all accounts, Trevor Rabin can play the shit out of anything he wants to. But there's no way he's ever going to you know, play bass for Steve Howe. I just, that's the way I saw it. And again, given everything I said in the, in the last time, you know, I still, I still just, I love Trevor to death, but. Dude, have you ever, have you ever uh, really, have you ever heard the, the isolated bass line to roundabout? Like, no. On, like, I agree with you that Trevor Rabin could do, uh, you know, anything that he sets his his mind to, you know, musically. Um, but it's a pretty good baseline, dude. Like, uh, you know, if he's not gonna, if he's just gonna play it one time, like, I don't know that, I don't know how, you know, may not be something that he wants to invest the time in. Particularly if Getty Lee's, you know, right there and able and willing, and Getty Lee probably knows it by heart, you know, since he was, you know, twenty years old, um, and. And let's face it, um, you know, we could have all played the baseline to Owner of a Lonely Heart, you know, when we were in, in junior high. I do think no, it's interesting. No offense to Chris Squire or Steve Howe. Well, and, and we'll get to that when we get there. Like I said, I just, I thought the whole thing was, was kind of interesting, um, just in, think, in the way that thing shook, shook out. All right. Who do you think is more of a dick, Joe? Trevor Rabin <laughs> or Steve Howe? <laughs> Oh, Trevor Rabin's the, the Steve Howe isn't even a dick. That's the thing. <laughs> mm -hmm. <laughs> well, uh, Trevor just looks humble in you know in, in the stuff he's doing with uh, 
Anderson. So I, I, I don't know. He just, he just looks older and wiser. And I, I, I'm not seeing that cocksure late 20 something that came out of nowhere. Yeah. It's possible. It's possible that you could be reading too much into this. I don't think so, but we'll, we'll just <laughs> again, I just, I, I, I watched it because everyone had been talking about it and I, I just found it interesting. That's, I just, yeah. And another interesting part about it, and, and what year was that? Do you guys know? Which, what year? What? That, that yes, was in the Hall of Fame. Was that just last year? Or? It was just months ago. It was just months ago. Oh, it was just months ago? Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Just happened. Because, because one of the interesting things, and, and I have no idea how or why, but, you know, Paul, to your point of, Watching Steve Howe play owner has always been somewhat uncomfortable. The last two times I've seen yes, Steve has done a much better job with that. Where it didn't it it, it it's almost like he 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 got himself into some sort of happy place that he could, you know, deal with it. I don't know. Yeah. It's just interesting. But that's not what we're here to talk about today. Yeah, I the one the one thing I found most peculiar about the whole Hall of Fame was when John Anderson apparently didn't even realize that Bill Bruford was acknowledged and, and part of it. Cause he was like, he was like, Oh, and Bill's here. And he's pointing out to the audience. He's out here somewhere. Meanwhile, he's like standing right behind him. <laughs> yeah. So, well, and that, that was the, that was one of the questions that I had. Cause it was, it was the, the union lineup, which was what? Yeah. Eight, nine of them, something like that. It was two of everything plus Chris and John. Yeah. So it would have been two, four, six, eight. So it would have been eight. Yeah. Were all eight there? I mean, Bill Bruford was on the stage and they showed him for like a second, but that was it. I didn't, I didn't notice Bill Bruford playing. Um, no. It was just Alan. And Tony K. Yeah. I didn't see him either. I didn't. I, you're right. I don't think I noticed Tony K there either. Yeah. So, um, yeah. I also. I, I don't know if I said this last time, but I, I, I thought it was really sweet that John Anderson not only you know obviously acknowledging Chris Squire and his passing, but he acknowledged Peter Banks as well, which I thought was yeah. really cool. Hell yeah. Well, yeah. I've I've seen I've seen yes where Steve Howe acknowledged Peter Banks' passing. Oh yeah. 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 That's pretty cool. Of course, at the time, that was like one of the first tours I saw them with John Davison, and John wasn't allowed to speak at that point, so Chris and and, and Steve did all the talking. So that oh. made very well. I don't know. Maybe his anyway. voice was just sore. <laughs> I don't know. Did they, so let that Benoit, did they let that Benoit guy uh, talk? Oh, I want to say I saw Benoit twice, and no, I don't think they let him talk very much at all either. What? What? Did they record an album with him? Oh, yes, they did. Was that Fly From Here, or was that... Yep, Fly From Here was with Benoit. All right, I for some reason, I... I and what about the other one? Um, um, Heaven can... and Earth was done with John Davison. Okay, so I didn't realize that. I thought, for some reason, I thought both of them were. And I haven't really listened much of um, Heaven and Earth yet. 
But I was just listening to Fly From Here the other night, and it was like, it was really good. Fly From Here is easily in my top five Yes albums. It may be number three. What? Oh, Fly From Here just... Okay. Well, now we're, talk- rank. now we're talking. Now we're talking. my crank. Hmm. But anyway. So, you know, having cogitated for a week, were there any leftover thoughts from uh, what we discussed last time. Personally, for me, like I said, I had gone back and listened to most of Time and a Word in the, in, since we last spoke, and I was amazed that Tony Kay was just kicking ass on that album. I'm like, what? Where, yeah. where, A, where did this come from? And B, where did this go? So, <laughs> because... so I, have, I have something that I think when we were talking last time, we started talking about Eddie Offord. And I think I had done a quick Google search while we were talking, and I stumbled upon a lengthy interview. Um, I want to say from it, it's it's a, an old one. It's from like 2000, but it's from uh, notes notes from the edge, which is a you know a website mm-hmm. dedicated to yes. And um, it was it's this really comprehensive and entertaining interview uh, with um, with Eddie Offord, like 30 years after you know a lot of these great albums took place. So one of the questions was, why do you think Tony K left the band? And I think his answer is perfect because I think we were maybe possibly reading a little too much into some of that as well. But Eddie Offords, I think he just says it great and it goes right to what you're saying, Joe. His answer was, he's probably one of the greatest B3 players around. The reason he left the band was because everyone wanted him to get into synthesizers and mellotrons and and stuff like that. And he was just so happy hammering away on the B3. And, <laughs> and that's, that's what he was doing. Is him just rhythmically. And that's what he was doing on Time and a Word. He was just crushing it. Mm, that's beautiful. Um um, it, it, it's funny that I uh, downloaded all the possible live shows that I could from that one thing that Spotify released. I think it's the the uh, is the close to the Edge tour, um, and Anderson is making cracks about Wakeman's gear breaking down. You know, <laughs> and it's like, well, you guys asked for this, right? Didn't, didn't this right. is what you wanted? You know. <laughs> You could have had two or three reliable instruments, but you wanted a fucking funny farm of gadgets. So there you go. There you go. That's why well, it's funny you should say that because on Roundabout, on that rock and roll thing, and I, you know, I'm not up on my my vintage keyboard gear, so I don't know what little magical box it was. But at one point, the video I was watching had a shot of him fiddling with some knobs on this little box that was, you know, yay big. And it's like, what the hell was that? <laughs> mm-hmm. You know, and how, how does it still work is probably a better question. But, uh, yeah, I don't know. Mm-hmm. Another interesting thing that, that came up, and, and Ken, you had made the point last time of, you know, Steve Howe joined the band and it seemed like he already had every instrument known to man. I don't, this is something that I had sort of stumbled across as I was putting the, the episode sheets together for this section of, of the podcast. 
Mm. But when we were going through Marillion, and you know, and, and you guys have all seen the Wikipedia pages, they're all laid out, you know, pretty much the same. And you know, two thirds of the way down or whatever is is the is the list of musicians and what they play. Throughout the entire thing with Marillion, you know, Rothery was basically guitars every once in a while, someone would have a dobro or whatnot. I swear swear to God, every yes album that Steve Howe plays on, you know, they're like six different bizarre instruments I've never even heard of. One of them I had to follow the link and find out the name isn't even the right name. And it's, I mean, it's, it's crazy, you know, and, and very rarely does it just come across as Steve Howe plays guitars because he plays all this <laughs> other great stuff. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And like I said, I, I don't know if that's just, you know, Steve has all this stuff or that yes fans totally geek out on the fact that Steve has all this stuff and need to know exactly what he played on every single, every single track. It's, it's kind of amazing. Huh. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, in, in the studio, no doubt, it's it's time consuming. Uh, uh, <laughs> it was worth it. I mean, they got some amazing textures. He, he doesn't use nearly as many. He doesn't use nearly as many instruments. Um, but he he's always switching stuff out and back and forth. And if you look at the at the episode sheets, I just cut right to the chase. I. I I started trying to list everything that was listed, but there was just no way I was going to... It was going to work. It was just too much. Hmm. So anything else from the Yes album or early Yes? So if we move into Fragile, which was released in 1971, produced again by Yes and Eddie Offord, featuring John, Chris, Steve, Rick Wakeman now joins the group on... Hammond organ among other things and uh, Bill Bruford was still there and Fragile is the fourth studio album by the English rock band Yes released in November 1971 by Atlantic Records after touring in support of their previous album the Yes album the band entered rehearsals in London in preparation for their next studio album early into the sessions keyboardist Tony Kay was fired over his lack of interest in learning more electronic keyboards. He was replaced by Rick Wakeman of the Straubs, whose experience with various instruments helped expand the group's sound with the addition of electric piano and harpsichord, mellotron, and mini moog synthesizer. Four tracks are group performances. The remaining five are solo features written by each member. The cover is their first illustrated by Roger Dean, who would design many of their future logos, covers, and stage sets. I think the Roger Dean entrance is an interesting aspect of this. Um, you know that, that I don't really know how to incorporate it into this, into this. But you know the the visual of Roger Dean and such a significant role with Yes over the years. Even you know even Heaven and Earth, I believe, was a Roger Dean cover. Um, you know, and and I. I think it was a, a, my understanding was, I guess they, they knew Roger, some of them. I, I don't know what the exact relationship was, but, um, you know, it was, it was obviously a, 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 a wonderful alignment of the visual with the music that just sort of seemed to work. Um, well, perhaps you could tell me how you interpret that album. I mean, it's a globe. It's got excessive greenery. 
It's got some squiggly, fragile, yes, kind of lettering. Like, uh, I don't know. Is it is it just a kind of a neutral branding of yes, or do you read it in? I want to say I actually read something about this once, and I, I wish I had could remember very clearly what it's about. The overall theme, obviously, is is the fragility of of the earth. I don't know where the sort of primitive flying ship comes in. Yeah, I, you know, I, I think I think a lot of that just kind of pops out of of um, Roger's head. Yeah. I, I don't know that it's a direct one for one um, correlation. I do remember yeah. a few years ago when they performed uh, Fragile Live. They had some weird video going on in the back that incorporated that that flying ship thing that was I found very disconcerting. But yeah, mm. be that as it yeah. may, I, I, the only thing that I uncovered was that exactly what we said. It was meant to create this fragile world. Um, and that spaceship is just, you know, part of it. It's cool looking. <laughs> it is. I was, I was just going to add that the little spaceship sort of reminds me of the ship on um, the cover of Os um, Osiris of uh, Sun Hillo. Yes, yes, it does. Very much yeah. so. As if I knew so, what that was. We'll get to that a little bit later, Ken. That was actually um, in between, um, uh, I want to say, Relayer and Going for the One. Uh, the band took a little break, and they all did some kind of solo project. And John Anderson recorded this terrific solo album called Osiris of Sun. Is it Osiris? I think it's Elias. Oh, Elias. That's what it is. Listen to me. Osiris. What the hell am I talking about? Elias of Sun Hillo. And it is on Spotify, and it is fantastic. Oh, okay. I haven't listened to Elias in a long time. I should. I listened to it on the way back from Pittsburgh, right in between Relayer and Going for the One. And it really, it really brought a lot of, of peace to me as I drove down the Pennsylvania Turnpike after listening to Relayer. <laughs> I'll just leave it at that for now. We'll, we'll get to Relayer. So I find I find it interesting, um, you know, sort of looking at at the at the arc that we're we're in the middle of here. You've got a bunch of what presumably twenty something year old musicians at this point who, you know, by their own admission, didn't really feel like following any rules per se. You have, you know, the introduction of Steve Howe. Um, with the Yes album, which gave them obviously a lot more texture, and they felt they needed a little bit more than that, and so Tony K's out. Rick Wakeman's in. Rick Wakeman brings with him, you know, a bevy of, of instruments as well as, by all accounts, a a technical capability that Tony just didn't have. And so now you start to really, you know see things coming together and you've already, you know, you've already got, you know, 
Bill, um, you know, doing the wonderful things that he does, and obviously, you know, Chris Squire and and John's voice. So now you you basically have, you know, the the recipe for the secret sauce, and and it shows up here. And so, Paul, today or yesterday, I forget what day it was, you had made, you know, the the point that Fragile contains two of the greatest songs ever written. I, you know, I, we could probably debate roundabout. Um, yeah, certainly, I, I'm, not, I'm not sure that those are my exact text, textual words, but <laughs> two, shall we? Two shall of the we, greatest songs. Two of the greatest songs for sure. Are you gonna Are you gonna check my quote? I'm I'm gonna quote you. Yeah. Okay. I. Okay. Um. Dun, dun, dun. Whatever you're about to quote to me, I do remember that just before I wrote this, I may have admitted that I was a little drunk prior to You did. You did admit (laughs) that. And it says, interesting, Joe, I would agree as album. It's not great. It just happens to have two of the greatest songs of all time on it. Exclamation point. Two of the greatest. I I stand by that. Roundabout and Heart of the Sunrise? Shit. Absolutely. Heart of the Sunrise, absolutely. But... But the point that that drove all of that in the first place was was my statement that fragile is flawed, and it's yeah. flawed in the sense of these these five solo pieces. Actually, only four of them because Chris's is awesome, but it's it's much more. <laughs> of... <laughs> well, I mean the the others. The others are it's it's almost like stop the tape here, Bill. You do something, or yeah. you know, Rick, you do something, and we'll just stick it in there. Chris kind of worked his into, you know, what essentially was, you know, a really short song. Oh, here we'll do. Chris will do his cool thing at the end. So you know that's it, it's almost been camouflaged, if you will, for mm. so many years as part of it, but. You know. Yeah. Plus, so you know, just one quick thing on that is that I I I find this I find this with We Have Heaven as well, um, because and not so much with We Have Heaven, um, as much as um as um, the, uh, what is is it actually called the fish? I think of it as um yes. Is it called the fish? Yes. Um, you know, not like Chris Squire. That song by Chris Squire w- included his complete identity, right? Like he was known as the fish. His his personification in progressive rock artistry has been fish, and even even Joe, the shirt that you bought me from the tour when he passed away, which yeah. was a tribute to him, is there's a fish you know, on it. Um, and not just any fish, it would be the, um, how do you say it, Chandeliria Prematoris fish? Yeah. And that is, so, like, that is his identity, like, woven into the song. And, um, and, and that when you listen to everything going on, all of the overdubs with the bass, it's so, everything about it is 100% 
Chris Squire. And I think that that's the way we have Heaven Strikes Me too, is that everything about it is John Anderson, from the strumming guitar to the very simple but methodic um, uh, percussion, to the layers and layers of vocals, to the completely um, strange vo uh, lyrics that are, are meaningless in some ways. The, the, it is it is everything about John Anderson, and um, you know I think what what you might be feeling about the others is like Rick Wakeman piece is just Rick Wakeman you know playing some classically inspired stuff on on the on the the organ, and Steve Howe's piece is beautiful. It's a classic. You know I remember sitting around at Senior Week in awe that Dan had managed to learn the whole thing. Um, it's it's just a guitar solo piece, which we all know how you feel about those, Joe. Um, and, and and it, there's there's less of their specific identity, and certainly Bill Bruford's, you know, five percent of nothing. Nothing. It's, like, it's really just you know rhythmic nonsense. But so I'm, I'm with you. I'm with you, which is why I I agree with you about that. The Yes album oh. and Fragile were both released in 1971 the year following right. the release of time in a word so like if you if you're putting out your third album within two years I'm, I'm gonna give you a pass if you decide to pad the album with some uh individual instrumentals well and, and you know i my feeling is i i think there was a certain based on everything i've read and, and it could be sort of revisionist history on their part, but there seems to be a certain amount of hubris involved in these sort of individual performances here. And while I get that, you know, they were young, they were feeling themselves, they, you know, and, and yeah, maybe they, maybe they needed to fill in some time on, on, you know, some grooves on the record, but it's just, when you look at, the Yes album, solid front to back. And you look at Close to the Edge, which is just perfection, start to finish. And smack in the middle of this, you've got an album with arguably two of the greatest songs ever written. And then a, you know, a bunch of discontinuous nonsense. I just, you know, and, and it's just, it, it frustrates me and... The fact that I've it, it annoys me that I can't just put in fragile and enjoy it because it's too jarring, you know these these shifts back and forth, and that has always kind of grated at me. And I remember when they performed fragile live, it was it was as annoying live as it is listening to the CD. Yeah. Oh. I would think that Fragile Live would kind of work. I mean, yeah, what live show doesn't have variation? I had it playing quietly on my Spotify, and now I've got Mood for a Day going. And the contrast <laughs> between the two, I mean, it, it's, I mean, I think it's perfect for the live environment. So, yeah, it's hard to say. Yeah, there, there is, there is that, that nice ebb and flow to it. Um, and you know, I you know, I've listened to the album so many times, just you know, in in the last twenty some years. Um, and it's interesting, Joe. Like I know I, I 
you know, I've heard them say that, you know, they were touring so much and they were busy writing and they all were, you know, like getting itchy to do their own kind of thing. And that was one way they did it. And I think Chris Squire, I think I read on Wikipedia that he said they, they needed to do that so that they were, could record all the songs quickly because they spent all their money on Rick Wakeman's keyboards. Um, <laughs> you know, I, whatever the reason was, like Rick Wakeman just said, like there were, you know, there were new listeners to the band. So they wanted to, whatever the reason, you know, it, you know, they did it. And I, you know, and, and I, I, I kind of feel this way about, and I think I mentioned this when we talked about the Yes album, is that the first time I listened to these albums in a long time, and I listened to them front to back, I enjoy the instrumental breaks and, and, and these types of things. I enjoyed the clap. I enjoyed these breaks. But then the more I go back to listen to it, I'm really just interested in, in the songs. Um, compared to, like, say, Masquerade, on the Union album, which I, I, I don't think I listened to that song more than one time all the way through. I've skipped it every other time after that. Um, you know, it just doesn't do the same thing as as these pieces do. So I think from an instrumental perspective, um, and maybe that's something that we're overlooking, you know, a lot of bands do instrumentals like this, and some are good and some are not good. Um, you know, in Steve Howe's case, Mood for a Day and The Clap are among the, the best. And, and I, I don't want to, I don't want to necessarily give the impression that I don't appreciate or on some level enjoy those, those songs. I, it's just, it's, it's not where I want to be. <laughs> my, my, my problem with, with this album I think explains why the classic Yes compilation exists. Because it it takes the Yes album and Fragile and cuts out all the crap. <laughs> you know, and we had talked about it in sort of the intro here. You know, Heart of the Sunrise was my uh, my gateway song to Old Yes. And, right. um, How was that? You know, Where were you exposed? Uh, it was just through the radio or through, uh, you know, one of your siblings? No, it was... It was Live, actually, um, we want to. S- we had we had thought that it was the second big generator show, but it may have been it may have been the first ABWH show. I'm not sure. It was one of those two. It was probably it was probably the second big generator show, um, and but I remember being in the spectrum. And, and and the, the, the sort of the, the, the big part at the end with the sharp distance and for whatever reason it, it like this, the switch turned and I was like holy shit this is awesome I need to I need to figure out more about this stuff and, and that was what sort of got me digging around and, and, and starting to listen to some more stuff seriously, you know, at that point and, and trying to figure out, you know, the greater yes picture, if you will. Hmm. That's a wonderful place to start. I, I, and I'm sure that's where you hooked me on um, the mixtapes and on, you know, driving around and whatnot. Yeah, you said no, no. I hooked you on, on that trip down to Miami, right? Hell yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. I <laughs> mean, Heart of the Sunrise at Sunrise. 
yeah, it doesn't that get was, any better. That, that was a fantastic trip, man. I still, exactly. I still remember yep. that. I still have yep. that that plaque because the plaque that there's like the idea that there's a plaque that says jazz and has my name on it just amuses me to no end. <laughs> no doubt, no doubt. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but you know, that's that's the funny thing because as I've gotten older, like, and, and Paul, I don't know if you remember this. Ken was involved in in whatever that that jazz conference was. And so one spring break, he ropes me down, or ropes me in to go down to, uh, to Miami. Miami with him, and we're we're muling all kinds of weird equipment all over this hotel for a few days, and it was amazing because everybody there was just so deep into into jazz, and they're they're asking me questions, and I'm like, I don't like jazz. I'm just here hanging out with my buddy, and they're like, what? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it was it was totally lost on me. But as I've gotten older, what I find is, you know, I, I've I've learned enough to to notice when, you know, there are jazz influences on things, and a lot of times that sort of perks my interest. And mm -hmm. and like I said, as I've gotten you know older and wiser, certainly in in the yes thing, you know, I. I got into Yes with Alan. Alan and Chris played together for so long, it was sort of like that was just the way of the world. But yeah. but man, I go back and listen to, to Bill Bruford in, in this segment, and I I don't think these albums would be the same without oh my Bill goodness. Bruford. Oh my goodness. Yeah, yeah. And Paul, you, you were alluding to this weeks ago. You, 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 is is this a good spot for you to spell it out? Um, yeah, I don't know if I if I could art articulate, it, but I I totally agree. Like the the whole awakening that I've had to Bill Bruford this go around, and you know, I, you know, we keep bringing up Dan. We should see if he wants to get involved with this. I'm I'm curious about his thoughts, but I remember listening to Dan go on and on and on about the Bill Bruford in um in, in um and you and I. And I, I really didn't get what he was, was getting to when he was saying that. But I think in, in these three albums, the Yes album, in, in Fragile, and in Close to the Edge, I said it's what he plays, what he doesn't play, and then how he plays them is, is really what makes it magical. He's got this hard rigidity of being tight with the bass line in so many different parts. Um, but it's not just always the kick lining up with the bass. It's... It's playing the rhythms on the snare and the and the and the kick. And we, I, we talked about it in the Yes album with the way he approached um, the rock and roll part of All Good People. Right? He doesn't play a straight beat. He plays a snare and a couple tom hits throughout the whole thing, and it gives it sort of this laid back. And you know, it's easy to say jazzy, but it's sort of this like behind the beat sort of feel sometimes, and it's so perfect. And I think. What I what I what I what I feel like is in a way it actually tames some of the heaviness of some of these riffs. It one of the things in in Fragile that I I kind of noticed was that in the song um, uh, South Side of the Sky is the first time we really hit we really hear like Steve Howe becoming noisy. He starts. And he starts this trend that goes through the next several albums where he just starts 
locking in on this loud, noisy, like annoying tone. Um, and I really think that Bill Bruford sort of tames that in the style in which he plays. And when Alan White shows up, you know, he's a much more straight ahead rock and roll drummer. And, um, and he kind of opens the door and lets Steve, lets Steve Howe just kind of get, get a little out of control, if, if you will. So I don't know if that, if that does it justice. Um, but um, uh, My example would be Heart of the Sunrise. The aggression is Steve and Chris. Clearly, that, that, that riff, you know. And it, the aggression is all in the guitars. And, and the stuff coming from behind, from Bill, is actually, like, kind of contra the aggression. He's, like, just, 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 just enough to keep them where they are without going too far. Um, it, it, he, he's an antagonist, but he's not the leader of the pack. Yeah, if if Chris Squire was the bully, Bill Bruford would, would would be the sidekick, but he wouldn't yeah. <laughs> be the bully. That's that is perfect, Ken, and that's much more articulate than than what I was able to say, because you're right. Like it's those little it's those little snare rolls that he does in Heart of the Sunrise that just kind of tames it. It just it just. And, and at the same time, it like puts the spotlight on this amazing riff that's going on. It's 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 really incredible. And 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 it's funny because, you know, when I was, you know, what, sixteen, seventeen, eighteen, twenty, whatever, I had no appreciation for Bill Bruford, because at that point, my experience with him was on ABWH which, as we already talked about, did him no favors in, in right. anyone's eye. If you listen to that album now, and we'll get there eventually, it, it's, it, it's not that this Bill Bruford we're talking about. It's not even close. And, and like I said, also by that point, you know, Alan and, and Chris had been together for so long that that seemed to be the way of the world. And, and so I, I just didn't even think about it. And it's amazing, you know, the more you think about these albums, the more integral that, that Bill becomes to everything. And, um, I'm, you know, I'm glad I at least had the chance to figure that out because yeah. it's, uh, yeah. And it's, oh, go ahead. Oh, I was going to say, you know, listening to, you know, particularly the, these these um, three albums here, Crimson is not uh, quite available on Spotify. Um, but what I've, you know, I've listened to it before, but I never listened to it with that lens. And the little bit that I've listened to, it's not the same, right? Like, you know, you said, I think, Joe, you said jokingly last time that, you know, I said, you know, nobody was nobody was playing like Bill Bruford. And you said and you said and I said since then and you said, well, Bill Bruford has been playing like himself since then. And like, I almost wonder, man, you know, like there's something really special happening in this in this combination. There is something really special happening in these three, particularly these three records. It's these amazing. Albums. Yeah, I would say that Bruford is responding more, you know, to the people I think he's actually listening to John quite a bit. 
you know, when when he's, you know, gentle with his symbols and when he's, you know, making space, I think it's because he's genuinely just enamored with the songwriting and he's part of it and he, he, he's contributing to it. Uh, uh, the irony there is that he left because of the songwriting process. Just, <laughs> you know, it was too much for him. Uh, but, but it, it, you know, it's got to be, you know, he, he's genuinely listening to Chris and he's, 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 you know, he wants that, you know, kick to match up, like you said. And, uh, 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 he, he, he never steps. Steve is so busy, but I never hear Bill stepping on Steve. If anything, yeah. he's just enabling Steve. Yeah. Yeah. So it's it's interesting, and I'm I'm interested to hear your guys' perspective on this. I, I've I've now made the comment a couple times about about Alan and Chris being together for so long and sort of developing, you know, whatever tight relationship they have. When we talked about um, Marillion with with Ian and Pete, you know, they sort of grew in, you know, and, and there, there are lots of examples throughout rock and roll history of, of, of sort of a, a drummer bass pairing that, you know, sort of, for lack of a better phrase, you know, grow to just know each other so well. This seems to be a, a different type of relationship based on, on the things we're talking about. Is, I mean, is that the way you see it? it it's still high functioning it's still exceptional yeah. but it's not it's not quite that that tight synchronization you know two people one mind type thing mm, i would say that the uh 1971 sound technology was kind of still adapting uh i think i think the idea of the bass player drummer Perfect combination. Maybe started happening later in the late seventies and the eighties when sound systems and technology became kind of aggressive and, <laughs> and <laughs> penetrable. And um, you know, but I, I think seventy one is like early enough where all this shit was just liable to like break on any given night. And you know, they, and, <laughs> you know what I mean? It, it was. It was. It was very large, not very transportable and, and, and vulnerable, and they had electricians soldering shit before every show. I, I don't know. The bass player drummer thing, I, I think, just happened later when, 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 when people could just beat the hell out of their instruments at really loud volumes in arenas and take it for granted. Yeah. So a couple of interesting things here. You know, can I, I'm, I'm, I think I'm with you in this. In this camp, you know, he talked about the sessions being um, like the, the band not having any demos in, in place. They would really just come in and experiment and work. He also mentioned like they would the, the bass and drums, they would, um, you know, they would they would do a lot of splicing. They would get bits and pieces together and then splice it together and literally splice the song together um, as they went. And then the band would go learn how to play it after they finished the song because they were really experimenting and writing it. But 
he they you know the question that they asked him was about like a typical day in the studio and he said they were long sessions very long the basic tracks were pretty much drums and bass maybe a guide guitar track and no keys chris was extremely precise and would want every kick drum and bass note to be locked in time wise i think eventually that drove bill crazy he wanted more free <laughs> freedom um but getting getting a minute of music might take several hours of experimentation so the basic really? track yeah i so said the basic tracks were a long long session they might start at two in the afternoon and go to three in the morning um so just kind of interesting about about that that. that that is amazing i've read a couple of stories kind of preparing for this you know about the the editing and you know growing up when we did this idea of, of physically cutting up the tapes and taping them back together just scares the pants off me and here these guys were working on what turned out to be you know you know several of the the seminal albums of, of all time and they're you know chopping up this that and the other thing and there are a couple stories what where one time the 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 right take got thrown out and they had to like dig around in the dumpster to find it. And then some other time, I think one of them drove off with the tape on top of their car and they had to go back. And I mean, what the heck can you imagine? Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Those stories just amaze me with all of this. And the fact that, you know, they were sort of, you know, writing this on the fly and, and Frankensteining it together. It's, you know, it's it's amazing that it sounds as good as it does. Yeah. Hmm. I, I wish Eddie offered hearing you, Paul. I wish he would do a tour. Um, uh, <laughs> I mean, there, there, there are a couple of folks from, you know, the Beatles who have either released books or done speaking tours and whatnot. Um, uh, that, that's, that's brilliant. Thank you for sharing that, you know. Uh, Chris yeah. Squire, he comes off kind of like a party boy and a drunk and a weirdo, but he's he's also kind of OCD. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's um, it's uh, it's interesting. Um, I'm actually going to post that link to the to the Facebook page right now. Awesome. Um, yeah. Yeah. So. Yeah, wasn't it Chris that, that that just partied so much that he forced ABWH? Was that part of it? I mean, there. I don't remember, I don't remember partying being having really much to do with it. Oh really? Okay. You know, I I have the impression, and again, this is just my impression. I think John Anderson gets to be a pain in the ass. <laughs> I th- oh. I think he's just he becomes difficult to deal with. And eventually, everyone's like, "John, get the fuck out of here!" But at the same time, you know, he's an, uh, apparently a nice enough guy that, you know, ten years later, they're like, "Hey, John, let's hang out." You know. <laughs> well, maybe it's, maybe it's, it's like, it's not that he's a pain in the ass. It's just that, you know, you can only take so much of, you know, on the golden wings of moths are the angels of whatever. Um, and after a while, you just want to go back and, you know, eat a steak. But, but, but that's, that's, that's only half of it, because I, I think that's maybe why John's, John might be a pain in the ass, because right. he's all 
flighty and ethereal like that, but you also hear stories about him being a total draconian taskmaster dickhead. So... Yes, I, well, I think he even admitted that, like, in the Relayer um, times, yeah. <laughs> which I think was part of, yeah, part of why he... Story yeah. about, his story about Gates is hilarious. Yeah, yeah, and I think that, that could be part of the reason why he went off and did Elias of Sunhillow, because he just wanted to do a project from front to back that he was in 100% control, maybe, I don't know. Um, yeah. That's... Um, it's pretty interesting. So I, I, I want to talk about uh, um, this uh, this theory that I've that I've started to, to put together based on uh, this past um, set of listenings. So the song "South Side of the Sky," and although "South Side of the Sky" is a pretty cool song, um, I would say you know it pales in comparison to the other three. Oh yeah, um, and. You know, long distance run around. I mean, what can you say about this song? I mean, we we've just heard it so many times because it. I guess it's the only one that they were allowed to play on classic rock radio for about ten years. Um, but you know, the thing that's that is striking me about that particular song, this go around, is how good of a song it is. Um, but also, the that. The the um the melody line, particularly at the beginning and you know in the middle of, of the breaks, um the do 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 like that is something that never would have happened with Tony K in the band, right? That's a, a beautiful um like coming together of Steve Howe and Rick Wakeman and and their their um you know their interpretation of of John Anderson's uh, song, right? It's pretty awesome. Um but South really? Side of the Sky... Because Wakeman is more, like, lyrical, linear, kind of quick melody kind of a yeah, guy? Just, is that... Like, if you listen to... like, And, and I could be wrong, um, because I'm, you know, I certainly don't know these albums note for note, but I think if you listen to, like, Time and a Word, and you listen to... You don't hear a lot of... Between guitar line and keyboard line, or harmonies, you know, two lines being played, you know, in harmony together... Um, you know, it's more of, okay, this is the keyboard part, and that's the guitar part. There's not as much um, interplay, um, which I think is the, the, the thing that really makes the Wakeman and, and Howe combination so incredible, um, because they are, they, 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 they don't approach their instrument like they're playing the, the instrument, like, Steve Howe doesn't necessarily, like, he's playing the guitar, but he's approaching the music for what it is. He's approaching the melodies and the themes, and he's incorporating them into the way he's playing, just as Rick Wakeman is, where I think, um, and I think Peter Banks was kind of like this, too, where he's playing the guitar line, right? I'm the guitar part, I'm, this is what the guitar is supposed to do. And Tony Kay, we talked about him banging on the B3, right? He's playing all these percussive counter rhythms to uh, what the guitar player is doing. So I don't, I don't, I certainly don't mean it as a, like a diss to Tony K. I just mean that it's, it's not something we would have heard or we would have even gotten close to had, had Tony K and Steve Howe, you know, taken a go at long distance runaround. One of the interesting things about Fragile, I think is 
this is the most subtle, understated that Rick Wakeman ever was. He 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 brought these these elements, Paul, that you were just talking about, trying to to you know wear the cape for for lack of a better phrase, you know, oh, yeah. it, it, you know, it's almost Perfect like phrase. he's Perfect. yeah, <laughs> you know, he was he was he was he was integrating himself into the band, I think, and. And he was bringing things that they didn't have before, but it wasn't, you know, it wasn't complete over the top or, or anything yeah. else. And, you know, it, it, we'll we'll get to that. But um, but when I was listening to this, you know, a, a lot of times you almost have to pay attention for for the keyboards in certain places. Whereas, you know, when you get into tails or something, that's not really the case. Yeah, I you know that's a, that is an awesome point, Joe. Um, you're right. I, I think he I think in close to the edge, you know, Rick Wakeman's kind of like a cowboy. Um, I mean, he's pretty rocking throughout that whole that whole bit. Um, but you're absolutely right. The it's the perfect perfect way. It's just understated. It's understated and and fragile, particularly being the the like the the new keyboarding gunslinger of the band, you know? Um, yeah. Pretty incredible. Well, maybe that's because all his stuff was, was being repaired or something. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I see. <laughs> it took a while. <laughs> I mean, so, yeah. First you buy it, and then you have to pay it off, and then you have to fix it, and you have to pay for the repairs. So, you know, <laughs> it's quite the process. <laughs> oh, God. Um, do they list his his instruments? I'm 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 in Wikipedia now, but um, they've got you know the personnel. Uh, it says Hammond Grand Piano RMI three sixty eight Electro Piano and Harpsichord Mellotron Minimoog Synthesizer. That's what's listed. Yeah, that's pretty intense. Yeah. Um, uh, I forget what I was just going to say. Sorry, Ken. I mean, uh, um, I mean, how, how did that play out through the years? I mean, I mean, uh, going to see them. Uh, certainly, you guys have seen them live more than I have. Did they stay true to the sounds? I mean, have they kind of sampled a lot of that and incorporated it into the sense they have now? Or do you feel they're just cheating live shows when it comes to that authenticity? That's an interesting question, and Paul, I'll be I'll be curious to hear your response to this. Now, obviously, I have seen Rick Wakeman much less than other keyboardists, um, but a lot of times. And even even on the Union tour, there are certain certain passages where you know the, the, the keyboard sound is is an integral part of the song. It's iconic. It's rememberable. And I seem to have in my mind being disappointed time and time again in those passages in the live performance. Um, 
All right. Could, could, you, could you say the same thing for Tony Banks? Could you say the same thing for, you know, whatever exposure you've had to Genesis? Because he, he was just as deep into the Mellotron, you know, just as deep yeah. into the, the Moog instruments. Um, I, no, I, I, now again, it's difficult to say I've only seen Genesis once and hmm. my memory of that particular show was everything I ever could have hoped for. Yeah. Good. So, good. Good. Yeah. So, I, 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 I have good memories. I, I, I did I see three, four five Genesis shows and I don't think anything sounded hokey to me. I think it yeah. would really fit. Yeah. Yep. But but I think I think Tony Banks and and Genesis in general they're a different beast. It, it's interesting okay. that. But the challenge is the they're, same they're, in terms of you've got a Fairlight or you've got a Mellotron or I sure. mean Moog. You know, Paul, what would yeah, you recall? But, yeah, so I I would I would agree with you. I would I thought that Tony Banks was very. Um, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? He was very true to the sounds of this, of all of the songs. Um, and you know, I, I will say that in the, the times that I saw them, you know, they were generally only playing, uh, like that melody of, you know, the real classic stuff. They weren't getting super deep into, um, Oh, true. They had that way of, of just just yeah. uh, editing a bunch of songs together, calling it a melody yeah, and being done with it. Yeah, and, but yeah. I, I really, I really remember him being very true to what it was, and I would say the other person, and perhaps maybe the person who most um, has come through in this regard that I, that I've ever seen play live is Mark Kelly of Marillion. I think that his sounds are always true to what they, you know, they've they've been going for. When I think of all the great sounds, like all of the great keyboard things that I remember from. From yes, all tend to be organ or piano. Um, no. So uh, you know, I, obviously, I think close to the edge is a lot more. You hear a lot more synthesizer type, you know, like stringy type early stuff, um, which is very cool. Like Anu and I is filled with it, and there's a lot of really cool stuff going on in close to the edge. But but I, I would I would agree kind of what Joe was saying that. That, uh, you know, Rick Wakeman has really cool keyboards that make really cool sounds, and I think he just picks the sounds that he likes the best, not so much the ones that are as close to what they got when they, you know, originally did it. Yeah, and, you know, when... Obviously, if you have Tony K playing Rick Wakeman, that's a whole different ball game altogether, so... Well, that's fair game because we've all we've all seen it, and we've all experienced it, and it's it's it, it's you know generally a compromise somewhere. I and this there's no real good place to stick this in, so I'll stick it in right here. You know, one of the things that has always stuck with me, and Paul, you alluded to the the video from the Union tour the last time we spoke, and. I, I remember Rick Wakeman talking, and Rick Wakeman comes across in that video just spectacularly. He, yeah. he comes across as knowledgeable, humble, you know, gentlemanly, whatever you want to call it. 
And and there's this one thing, and, and by all measurable accounts, Rick Wakeman is in a different league from Tony K. Let's uh, you know, I, I don't think you can you can argue that point. And yet, there's there's a part in there, and it's been playing in my head for the last two days as I've been thinking about this, where Rick is talking about, you know, on that tour with the two of them finally got together and figuring out, you know, how people, you know, played what. And he's like, you know, so, you know, Tony was figuring out how I played things. And he says something along the lines of, and there are things of Tony's that I've been playing completely wrong for years. And there's no need for Rick Wakeman to have said that. Right, right. I mean, and, and, and back to what we started with in the beginning, I could never imagine a situation where Trevor Rabin would say that about a Steve Howe line. Ah, 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 ah. Well, I know. <laughs> I, 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 I mean, Steve Howe is iconic, and he's... he's, he's classic and he's a gentleman and everyone loves him and i think it's just trevor being defensive i don't think trevor is quite the jock dick uber aggressive person that you make him out to be he's not the uber aggressive dominant jock dickhead you think he is he's just a white guy from south africa who had a great voice uh uh and you know fine he made a good contribution um, Why do you think that? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I mean, because because as high school mates, as friends, as virtual brothers, we could create music, and it was. You know, possible, but it was in a bubble. And by the time, you know, we we, we grew up, we were all, you know, writing uh, pop songs. Paul was at Millersville studying music, learning kind of the art of, you know, keeping it simple and and whatnot. And, 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 you know, I I graduated to writing pop songs and... Dan had his own kind of uh, Latin-flavored uh, uh, interpretation of what a pop song could be, and, and 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 that was just our experience. The the you know it was it was it was you know progressive music. Uh, it did sustain itself. It did last, but. Uh, it, it's really hard to say if, if yes would have been a financially viable vehicle without owner of a lonely heart. Um, and you know, listening to, to Trevor Horn, and I, I, I think they had checked out. I think Chris Squire kind of checked out a little bit. John Anderson checked out a little bit. Um, you know, it, who else was in the band? Alan White, he wasn't going to write the next album. They needed that. They needed fucking Trevor. I don't, I don't see how you get from point A to point B without him. 
Well, I, absolutely, a hundred percent. And I think Trevor knows and understands that. <laughs> <laughs> and and he made his career off of that. Yep, absolutely. Um, you I know, mean, if you, if you and, and we'll get there, but if you listen to Trevor talk about the songs that made up 90125 and, you know, his interactions with record companies about that, I mean, I, call it confidence, call it hubris, call it whatever you want. The vibe I get, and, and again, I am an, an unabashed Trevor apologist. I love virtually everything that Trevor does. But every story I've ever heard about Trevor or from Trevor's own mouth, Trevor loves him from Trevor. Oh, yeah. Uh, he really, really does. But but we'll we'll, we'll get to Trevor. So we'll get to Trevor. Couple just a couple things that I'd say about that because I love how we have these conversations and we when we pass all these judgments and I do it clearly like constantly and it reminds me Ken you brought up you brought up high school it reminds me of sitting in the lobby at CB West at study hall or in the morning and and just sitting sitting there as though we were like the the final authority on music passing Oh, this is this and oh, all of this like like we would just say all these things and like you know it made me think when you it made me think of that when you said you know like everybody was checking out um uh, you know around that time and and you know trevor rabin comes in but like i th i think it's it's we talked about it in the in the albums around marillion how you know not every album is a fantastic wonderful thing but it's yep. just the yep. it's the steady progression of doing what they do. They're they're songwriters. They're performers. They get up, and it's it's the constant motion and the constant creativity. They 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 keep creating because they keep wanting to create. And you know, Trevor Trevor Rabin was a guy from South Africa who was living in California, and he was trying to make a living doing music and. Everybody that he was working with said, you know, you need to do this, you need to do that, you need to do this. And he kept looking for different, you know, ways to get his music out there. And somehow he ended up playing with Chris Squire and Alan White. And and everything just kind of built from there. So I, I think it's all of them just trying to push and to keep doing that 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 creativity. Um, one, of, one of the things that I wanted to say before we left, because, Ken, you were talking about, you know, Trevor not being, not being a dick. And... Um, and, you know, like, all guitar players have a certain style. And, and you, I think you can group certain guitar players in, into certain styles. Like, you'll hear some guitar players and you'll say, oh, he sounds like Eddie Van Halen. Or, oh, he sounds a lot like Steve Vai. Or, um, you know, oh, he sounds a lot like um, uh, uh, I, you know, anybody. But you rarely ever hear anyone say, that guy sounds a lot like Steve Howe, unless they're playing or trying to play a Steve Howe song, right? And, like, he he is one of the most unique 
guitar players, I think, stylistically in popular music, if you can, if you can categorize this as, as popular music. Because and he's like, a raging daredevil with no boundaries. He just, yeah. he just goes for it, whether it's what it was intended to be or not. Just something happens, and it's brilliant. Yeah. And exact, totally. And I don't, I don't even know if he plays a power chord until um, heat of the moment in Asia, and you know, and I don't know if he's ever played a power chord before then. So, so like. You know, here comes Trevor Rabin. He wasn't even trying to to be in Yes. He just kind of fell ass backwards into it. And all the songs that he just got to record all of a sudden have have been attached to, you know, at that time, what, whatever it was, like, you know, 15 years of, of this musical progressive rock mammoth. I, he, he, I, he must have ended up in a hotel bar with Chris Squire. That's the only fucking possible explanation. There it is, but but when you th- when you think about that whole conundrum, I don't I don't think there's anything dickish about his thought of oh I'm not going to play Steve Howe's stuff or you know I think it's just that you know he is who he is. Steve Howe is, is one of the greatest and one of the most unique, and that he's just completely not as I think. What we've experienced with Steve Howe's uncomfortableness is that, like, Steve Howe just isn't, isn't the kind of guy who's, like, going to play, like, three power chords in a, for a whole song. Like, it's just not his deal. <laughs> we're we're going to have so much fun when we, when we get to Trevor. And again, <laughs> I love Trevor, but I just, I think you guys are giving him way too much credit. That wasn't even what I wanted to talk about. You guys went on and on about Tony K. You guys went on and on about Rick Wakeman, and you never said Jeff Downs once. Can you can you elaborate? We haven't, we haven't gotten we haven't Jeff gotten Downs yet. yet. We'll we'll get to Jeff. Um, yeah, I can't wait to get there. That is going to be an interesting episode or series of episodes. If you think about it, after we get through tales. We have Relayer, Going for the One, um, Tormato, and Drama. That's some ground to cover right there. It's those a shame four, we're going to use all our time on Tormato. Those, <laughs> those four albums are vastly, vastly different. Each one of them. You know, in, in right now we're in this sort of very cohesive, beautiful arc. Um, where everything is sort of related and everything else, but those four, it's like, wow. So an, an interesting thought that I had related to Yes, and I, it never occurred to me when we were talking about Marillion, although we sort of skirted around the idea, but Yes, I think, is a little bit different due to the constant personnel changes. But what it, what it occurred to me, and I think it fits in, with the discussion we were just having about Trevor too, is it, it it's it's analogous to the the progression of an automobile. So the Ford Mustang has been in constant production for fifty two years at this point. There's no denying that a nineteen sixty five and a half Mustang is vastly different from a 2017 Mustang 
and yet if you if you look at just those two there are elements that translate through and if you look at at all of the different styles of ford mustangs there's there's a progression you can see they're related to each other even if they're clearly not the same thing and sometimes there are great leaps and sometimes it's more subtle changes and and that's sort of how I put my brain around this whole yes thing, um, you know, and, and, and as it pertains to, you know, all of the different personnel changes and, and where we wind up with everything. There, there, there are, you know, these sort of common threads that go through it, but sometimes you've had different people sculpting the fenders at, at various times. Wow. So, So that being said, um, you know, let's let's move into close to the edge because so this is a good this is good. So two quick things. I I really don't want to leave fragile until okay. I clearly make this point about south side of the sky. I could be way off here, but south side of the sky. Is, is like Steve Howe unleashed. And it is the weirdest, like, I, it just hits me so strange. Like, he's just playing this, this such aggressive melody, and the tone is more aggressive, and it's more mid-rangey, and it's, it's really harsh. And I really kind of don't like it very much. And I noticed that, <laughs> like, this is the first time that we hear it, but I think one of, I honestly think one of the things that has always like prevented me from fully appreciating and loving drama is just the harshness of the Steve Howe guitar tone in, in drama. Um, it, 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 he starts to be crazy and he continues this slowly but surely through parts of Close to the Edge Lots of it in uh, tales, and then you know I think it comes. It may come to a climax in um, in uh, ga the Gates of Delirium. So oh god, um, I can't wait to talk about Relayer because I can't wait. But but South Side of the Sky for me is 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 the, the linchpin. It's the turning point. This is where. The noisy um, Steve Howe, and and he get he becomes more tame later. It's still noisy and aggressive because even in Awaken, there are a lot of parts that the guitar tone is is a little little rough. Um, but it but it all starts with South Side of the Sky, and there are just some really cool parts to South Side of the Sky between the vocals and the piano interlude in the middle. Um, again, like I said before, it's it's a, it's a it's a great song. It pales to the to the other three full tracks on this album, but um, um, I wanted to mention that. And the last thing that I wanted to offer from the Eddie Offord interview, because we touched on it a little bit last week, and I, you know, I think it becomes unavoidable to discuss when we hit close to the edge, and that is when um, they asked him. What did you think of John's lyrics? And 
And his response was, I always loved the way John wrote his lyrics. The rest of the band gave him such a hard time about his lyrics. They'd all say to him, John, your fucking lyrics don't make any sense. What is this river mountain stuff? It's absolutely meaningless drivel. And he'd say, look, when I'm writing lyrics, I use words like colors. I use words for the sounding of the words, not the actual meaning. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I, like, when I started thinking about that, it's like, okay, that that makes a lot of sense. The edge is so perfect. It's like, it doesn't have to fucking have a poetic thing. It's he's he's almost just narrating what's going on in the songwriting process. It's fucking beautiful. Mm. Yeah. Um, um, yeah. I, I I was searching my Gmail. I was searching my text messages, but I referred to the regression or the kind of backwards path. Um, Benjamin Button, if you will. Steve Howe started off with fucking 12-string and dobro and every instrument he could fucking get his hands on. He started off acoustic and sensitive and beautiful. And then he just, like, went deaf and he started playing the most treble tone you could imagine. And if you read Wikipedia or interviews, he, he, he like, defends this treble tone and it has the most nonsensical slapback echo I've ever heard. <laughs> what the fuck? <laughs> You know, <laughs> yes, it's like, it's like you get the most sensitive, articulate, melodic guitar player you've ever had, and he turns into fucking GTR. That makes no sense. No, uh, <laughs> yeah. wow, it's it's crazy. GTR. It's true. And we will not, we will not, I'm sure we will talk about this more in, in the upcoming, um. In the upcoming albums. Oh, goodness. Fair goodness enough. Uh, Joe, it's like uh, one o'clock. Uh, uh, give us some direction and uh, kind of steer us towards uh, something reasonable. Well, do you guys do you guys want do you want to dive into Close to the Edge or do you want to just no. finish up our thoughts here on Fragile? And, no, it's okay. going to be a whole other session on Close to the Edge, dude. Absolutely, it is. So, so that being said, let me um, let me add two cents here about what you were just talking about. Because Paul, based on something I think you had said regarding, you know, John's lyrics, I think it, it came about in regards to sort of the the late realization that yours is no disgrace was an anti-war song or something like that. Yeah. I, I've been ruminating on that and. What has struck me, I've been listening to Yes for a lot of years. And I have, you know, driving around, attempted to sing a lot of Yes songs. And I have, you know, done so. And it never occurred to me that I never stopped to get a clearer idea about what on earth John was trying to get across to me. I never had an experience with a Yes song I, in the same way that I had with, say, you know, the overall message in Brave or, you know, you know, the, the Marillion experience, the, the message that's coming across is, is much more. Um, 
Uh-oh. We're coming in and out. So I, I find it interesting that that John's lyrics, for whatever reason, hasn't elicited that response from me. Hmm. Yeah. So did we lose yeah, it's, Ken in our, our recording? <laughs> Do you see them? Um, <laughs> oh, there's Ken. Joe, one, one, one more time. Give, give that one more shot. Um, uh, I think I'm missing the essence there. So, so the essence is John's lyrics have never resonated with me to the, the point where I, I need... I'm never moved by John's message. I'm moved by the melody. Um, and it's like it's like he was describing himself. He uses lyrics like, like colors. You know, and I'm singing brave. And, you know, I'm at that, that last part with um, standing in the swing and, and goodbye to all that. I am yeah. freaking there. I am feeling everything about it. And I understand exactly what the story is. I understand why there's this there's this big outlet of emotion. I can sing and you and I, and I love it, but the feeling I get is not driven by whatever message John is trying to convey to me because I've never stopped to think about what message John is trying to con convey yeah. to me. It just doesn't come across. Well, uh, my morning, I, I, I swear this is exactly what happened. For whatever reason, my Spotify was playing the end of the levers, and that was kind of nice. And then it went into New Kings, and I started having like this conniption and, and connection with it. And then I remembered our podcast, and I switched from you know 2016 Marillion to 1971 Yes, and I was like. Oh my God! <laughs> I I can't make the switch. Like my fucking, it, I haven't been awake long enough. I haven't had my coffee. I like I couldn't do it. And um, yeah, I, I had to stop. I don't even like Wawa. I stopped at a Wawa and got some coffee. I'm like, I'm gonna fuck it. I'm gonna do it for Joe. I'm gonna do it for Paul. I'm gonna listen to Fragile if it kills me. And, and, but. But my head was like all fucking Hogarth, and that, and I, I did make the switch, but it was a very violent transition. Yeah, and, wow. and you know, I, I don't know if that's you know John's etherealness or or you know whatever. Um, like I said, I I I love to hear John sing. I love I love the melodies. I I I know what the words are. But I've never been driven to figure out what he's trying to say. It just doesn't yeah. seem important, you know. There's and, and there's there's so much other stuff going on. It's like you know whatever. Well, you know, it's I, funny. I've, I've thought more about that. Maybe we all have, uh, you know, this go around. Um, you know, what's what's funny for me is that even, you know, as I mentioned before, I, I don't really pay much attention to lyrics. On the early onset of listening anyway for yes it you know early onset you know means about you know 30 years um <laughs> and, but like 
I've I've been in the car driving, singing along to parts of Close to the Edge with just as much emotion and just as much connection to the music that I that I have with the end of Brave. And I have no fucking idea what I'm singing about, and I don't care. Right. I'm just I'm getting chills, and the windows are down. And it's like, just not this, right away, not right away. <laughs> <laughs> it's just like the music. It's just you know, and, and Ken says, you know, I think said it great. You know, he's 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 writing with colors, and he's he's a it's it's part of the whole writing process itself. And it's it's been more fun this go around. You know, still not really understanding the lyrics of Close to the Edge, but knowing more about what the song is about. Mm-hmm. It, it makes it it makes it that much better. I mean, at the end, after the whole song, like you know, you're in your fifteen. The, <laughs> the song. song is about the writing process, which Bill Bruford turns around <laughs> and fucking pisses on as soon as he has the first opportunity. <laughs> but he, but like even if you're fifteen minutes into the song and you're singing another verse, and everybody just stops so they can go. Oh, oh, <laughs> and like I'm screaming at the top of my lungs. I don't even know why, but it's just it's just so fucking great that we're just going to scream. Oh, at the top of our lungs. It's it's just it's brilliant somehow. Yep. 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 Somehow it is. Yeah. And and so, you know, again, it's. You know, you, you we've had this arc now where we started out with sort of the nucleus of yes, and we've had to find some other of the parts that fit in, and and fragile comes out of that. You know, now we have, you know, arguably the the lineup of yes, um, and you know, at least certainly as far as the as the the seventies and the the traditional progressive. Um, portion yeah. of their career. This is it right here. And, you know, so here again, Fragile is one of these situations where, you know, now you've got all the people together. They have to sort of figure out how how to make music together. Um, I've, I've made the assertion that there was a certain amount of hubris with the solo portions of this. There, you know, I'm sure there are lots of explanations as to why that is, um, but but clearly, you know, you've got Roundabout, you've got Heart of the Sunrise, that clearly illustrate the possibilities of what you have with this particular lineup of individuals. Um, so it's you know when you're when you're trying to retroactively build a, a story, if you will. You know these these first four albums are are just you know the 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 perfect movie script in in how to you know create the the perfect um, progressive rock group if you will and you know when when we convene next time and we get into close to the edge that's the big payoff right there and if you think about it as sort of like you know a balancing act you're 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 getting very close to that with fragile i think in my opinion close to the edge is the perfect balance between you know the the songwriting the individualness of of all the musicians wanting to get their point across and then it 
sort of the scales tip the other way as you go into tales and it becomes too indulgent in in certain regards and you know he's certain never, regard. you never you never quite get back there but but again it's it's you know it, it it's an easy arc to see and of course from that point on and i guess at tales you know when bill bruford whips out his Johnson and hoses all over the songwriting process, you know, now you start to see the the personality influence and, and you, you start the, the yes um, turnstile of personnel changes, which in a lot of ways, it, it's interesting when you compare it to, um, you know, Genesis, which has sort of their, their consistent, had their consistent core Rush, which never had any significant changes. Um, Marillion, we just spent a lot of time talking about them. We've been together, you know, the five of them. And, and those bands were able to sort of, you know, keep going. And, you know, I think we could, and maybe we will get into later on as we talk about them, you know, whether or not that, that sort of consistency led to a certain amount of staleness. I think we talked about this with Marillion. There were periods where it wasn't great, and then something wonderful happened. Um, my, you know, not to, to, to blow the wad too soon, you know, I think Rush did that. You know, the Rush albums, they're, they're very discreet groupings in terms of what they were doing. But I think, you know, the last, the last grouping or two has not been up to snuff. Um, Genesis, I don't think you could reasonably say in their last couple of, of, of albums was maybe a true progressive album. But with the exception, perhaps, of, of Open Your Eyes and maybe Talk, I think this sort of turnstile of, of personnel and yes has helped to keep them viable. Uh, you know, and Ken, I think you were sort of touching on this with the introduction of, of Trevor in, in the 80s. Um, so I'm, I'm very, very keen to get to close to the edge. Um, in my opinion, close to the edge is as close to a perfect album as anyone is ever likely to make. I think front to back, top to bottom, it is just utterly spectacular. Wow. So, that's setting the stage. All right. Nice. <laughs> so, um, so that's when do we get the master's name? That pisses me off. <laughs> the master's name. <laughs> Who is this person? Um, it took too long. Yeah. Um. Uh, I know where you're headed with this, but in deference to what Paul said, we need we need at least two minutes out to really experience roundabout we kind of dodged the issue it was kind of the central issue coming into this it was kind of the uh the commercial kind of linchpin the thing that we avoided in this whole fucking podcast and i think I, <laughs> you think it's the elephant in the room ken yeah because you started off with uh you know the award ceremony and we talked about, you know, the content of the speeches. We talked about 
the interplay among the musicians, but Roundabout itself as a song, as a an FM top forty radio, you know, you're in junior high and uh, you're hearing this on the radio just like I am. And it, 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 it's pulling you in. It's got these stupid fucking harmonics on the guitar. It, it's doing this, you know, kind of this. The Chris Squire bass line is just infectious. It's, it, 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 it's got the. Um, and it's almost like too, too easy. And you think it could be a sucky song. And it turns out to be the most orchestrated harmonized aggressive progressive experience that you've had at that age so you know paul say a word about roundabout um i don't know i don't know what I, that i can say much else than that Ken. Um, <laughs> <laughs> one, one one thing that was that so as just from the 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 basic part of it like the vocal harmonies the um you know talk about understated keyboard playing like the you know the part in the chorus where the like it is it's like a quintessential progressive rock line when you think of like kansas um you know they have lines just like that all throughout yeah. you know their stuff there it, it it's it's everywhere like and the harmonies at the end and there's such a great interplay with the acoustic guitar and the electric guitar and the bass line uh bill bruford again the, the bass interaction between the bass line and the drums um i was and and i was i was really thinking a lot about this song today as i was driving through um new jersey and i was experiencing several roundabouts in my journey today and um it it, in, a, in a way, Ken, it is. It's it's almost like the gateway to yes. Like if you don't know anything about yes, you've probably heard Roundabout and have liked it and have sung along to the end outro with all the lyrics. And it really is. It's somehow. It's like we talked about with Marillion. They they managed to in 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 uh, in clutching at straws and in, in in several instances in the in the Hogmar. To, to put all of the qualities of progressive music into a nice short small package of a real song that's accessible roundabout is like the quintessential version of that i think exactly yeah it's amazing how many people have gone to great length lengths to cover it on youtube with some precision and and, and just total deference for you know how it was originally written uh uh and just hearing it brings back, it's got to be like 20 years of FM radio experience with them, like, like forcing this on us, but willingly, like, 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 I don't think I have the ability to turn it off when it comes on any kind of, you know what I mean? YouTube or FM or whatever it happens. And, and I'm there. Uh, uh, and, and it's specific to us. Um, in our neck of the woods, in the Bucks County, Montgomery County, Pennsylvania, uh, the cover band older than us was Narcissus. And they were covering Yes when we were uh, 15 and 16 years old. Right. And that was really impressive. 
and and I, I think uh, I know that they had a rotary speaker on the organ. You know, they may not have had exactly the the gear that was made for the song or whatever, but but um, when we were coming up, um, it was pretty common for our uh, our you know senior influencers to, to, to be covering yes and w w we were hearing the original we went to the live shows we saw the cover bands and that song just persisted and it was fucking awesome every time yeah yeah The only exception to that, Ken, was after the at the end of the Masterworks tour when I chose to leave during roundabout so I could catch the the first ferry off <laughs> out of Kansas. You're forgiven. You're forgiven. Yeah, uh, like I said before, after after listening to Gates of Delirium, um, track four <laughs> on Tales of the Topographic, Close to the Edge, and a couple other songs, I I felt like you know it was okay to leave. And, uh, actually, our local cover band, not only did they do Roundabout, they did um, It's Your Move, right? If, if I remember yeah. correctly. In Lansdale. Wow. I don't know. I have, a, I have a cover of Your Move on YouTube myself, Ken. I don't know if you've caught that. <laughs> oh, man. Oh. See, Joe... We should, we should put that on the Facebook uh, page, Paul. <laughs> exactly. So, speak, speaking of the Facebook page, and these will be my final contributions of the evening... I did just put up the isolated bass tracks to Roundabout on YouTube. Okay. And I oh. and I just I just quoted Ken. Chris Squire bassline is infectious. <laughs> and then somehow in the last two hours, I have stumbled upon what I guess in the back of my mind, it probably I always should have known this existed, but for some reason I just never sought it out. The Roger Dean website. And yeah. uh, I'm I've been among on other things, Yeah, among other things, you can download um, desktop wallpapers. So I've just put the link to that up on uh, on the website as well. Um, or not the website, the Facebook page. And I would invite uh, both of you guys to go onto uh, the Facebook page and comment ranking your um, top fish era Marillion albums in the comments. Um, I put a little post in there. I'll do the same. Awesome. Yeah, I'm worried. I'm worried. Derek, if he met me in person, would probably just clock me in the. Oh. He'd just knock me in the jaw because I'm not his advocate. He does some good yeah. work now and then. I'm with you. Speaking of that exact sentiment, Ken, I would love to track down Tony K. And take him out for a steak dinner because, <laughs> like, <laughs> somehow he's become like the whipping boy of uh, this conversation. Meanwhile, he he's one of the greatest keyboard players in classic rock history. Um, greatest, he, he, really, dude. Listen to the Yes album, and you were you even said it about time and word. The dude rocks, like he like. You know, he rocks. He, and then then why was he completely emasculated by Trevor? 
Well, that's for a conversation for another another episode. <laughs> I think. I think I want to. I want to see the video for the first toward, time toward the that fucking fucking Trevor Rabin and Rick Wakeman got together because there's nothing in the catalog that matches up. There's fucking nothing that matches up. It's like Rabin right. and Wakeman. Uh, I guess everybody is learning material that they never played on before just to make this work. And you saw it live, Joe, right? So did Paul. I'm going to yeah. see him again live. <laughs> <laughs> I, had, I don't know where yet because they're not coming back to Dallas or to Texas, but I will see them again. Um, you know, they're, they're, they're going to be up here, I think. The show that I'm going to go to is the one in Reading, Pennsylvania, Joe. Okay. Um, they're playing in Reading, Trenton, and Philly three nights in a row. Um, Ooh. But um, I don't know. I don't know if I. I don't know if I would do three nights in a row. Um, I think I actually can't do can't do three nights in a row because I have a gig on one of those nights. But none. But um, I, I Reading. Do two. two. Yeah, I think I could. I I think two would be fun. We could do Reading and Trenton. Um. Nonetheless, uh, I think things change as we get older. Sometimes we we do gigs for different reasons, and uh, and sometimes we do gigs just because we want to play with you know with different with different players. So yeah, fair enough. All right, gentlemen, shall we? Uh, does that put a pin in? Uh in fragile, I think so. You guys rock. Love it. We do rock. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Progressive Palaver. We hope you've enjoyed the conversation on Yes is Fragile. We look forward, as always, to hearing your thoughts, your comments, your uh, your ideas, your feedback, whatever you may have. Please uh, feel free to reach out. Uh, we have a number of ways you can contact us. You can tweet us at progpala. That's P-R-O-G-P-A-L-A. We are available on uh, Facebook youtube and instagram each of those um, i believe you can find us as progressive palaver and you can always email us at progpala at gmail.com progressive palaver is of course available on both itunes and google play we are hosted on soundcloud and i believe you can find us on any one of the uh, other sites where people generally find their podcast we uh, have certainly enjoyed this, and we look forward to the next episode where we get to dive into the seminal album, Close to the Edge. <laughs>